Well, I want to welcome everybody here. Um, Um, I'm Eva Soltis, and I've had the great privilege of being um, a creative consultant for this production of Young Caesar. And I want to start by saying how grateful um, I am and all of, all of the people that were close to Lou, many of whom are here, uh, are that this opera of his is coming to fruition this evening. It feels like it's one of the rare one in 100 year blooms that only happens for one night, and we're all here to witness it. But it will hopefully leave little tiny plants all around it that will blossom later. So um, we're really, really grateful to the Los Angeles Philharmonic for taking this on and for uh, the amount of work that has gone into it, uh, and especially to Yuval Sharon, who with the industry has directed it. So I want to really thank them. Um, in addition to being a consultant for the program, I've made a, a, a feature-length documentary about Lou Harrison, and I want to start by showing the segment of that film that deals with young Caesar. So in the sense, I'd like to let Lou give the introduction. had all the way through a feeling that I need to leave an opera on a, an overtly gay scene between two men of status and character. Historically founded and the real thing. There's a pride in fact uh, over a long period of time to see that I do this well. I immediately thought of the episode in um, uh, Julius Caesar's life in which he had an affair with the king of uh, uh, Bithynia. It was perfect for the occasion because I was interested in the melodious quality of Italy. And, and he goes to Asia, in effect, at the court of Bithynia, which is in Asia Minor. For me, that meant two musical possibilities. And we did them with puppets. I covered the world premiere of that opera for the Los Angeles Times. It was commissioned by Betty Freeman. Plot is about the young Julius Caesar in his sort of homosexual fling period. He was around 20 and was really pretty and was having a good time. He had gone as a representative of Rome and he got real friendly and the king threw him an orgy and everybody had a good time and that sort of uh, the plot. And there's something in Act Two called the eroticon that uh, they used to do in Roman theater all the time. And this particular one was um, puppets, that, they were birds, or so they seemed. It looked like birds flying around on, on rods. And you can hear this on the tape. People are just sort of charmed by it and going ooh and ah, until they realize that these aren't puppets, but they're penises. After it was over, there was a party, and the ladies, I must say, they, were, they, they came to the party, but they made it clear that they were shocked and appalled at this scene, and they withdrew their funding. 
We had to scrounge around to pay people to get back up to San Francisco. Eventually, the Portland Gay Men's Chorus did a version on the full stage with a 90-man chorus uh, for which I wrote all the way through the opera. They're not having been a uh, chorus in the first place for the puppet opera. But during that, um, I realized that it needed arias and someone to come out and sing about something. Otherwise, it chattered on all the way through. In 1994, I became the director of the Lincoln Center Festival, and I approached Lou about turning it into a real opera. The Young Caesar, of course, is, a, is kind of a problem child for Lou. It's been that way for a long time. It first started off as a puppet opera, and now it's involving actual living figures. Um, it has a very curious form. Um, there's an awful lot of recitative-like activity, which, as Lou explained to me, has to be understood in the tradition of Chinese opera, but it's something that's a little bit difficult for Westerners. The Mark Morris is committed, so... It's July of 2001. You're living so long as part of the deal. <laughs> All right, yeah. You have to sign a contract. Okay, okay. And this is one of the pieces also that has the complete orchestra in it. So here's the libretto for the, that's the aria. And then once the aria is done, mm -hmm. it, uh, I have actually written the beginning of the palace music into here so that it just flows right into the, uh, into the palace music again. Good one to the people of Rome will be made breathless by the entry into the city. Then it's... Yeah, makes, <laughs> makes all sorts of sense. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just put it... Much better, yeah. After I'd left the festival, my successor, Nigel Redden, continued trying to push the project. But the libretto is problematic. And th there was a question about who had the rights to change it, if anyone. I think the first we heard was we received in the mail, Lou received in the mail, a revised libretto, which was, I thought, somewhat tactless. And uh, Lou was appalled. We had endless meetings about it that were sort of fascinating. Because, I mean, it is fascinating to discuss a work and say, okay, I mean, we now have the possibility of changing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Then came September 11th, and the real cutback financially, and finally, we weren't able to do it anymore. The business of music is quite awful. Activity of maintaining a career as a composer occupies time. I have better things to do. It is giddily difficult these days of everything being a contract, you know, of every kind. I mean, it's just, it's astounding. And then to do that, but also have to 
do a great deal of advertising and um, be able to go about to meetings and to congresses and one thing or another. I can't do that. I, I need my quiet, I need my uh, peace, and I need um, pencil and paper, and that's about it. No, I take it back, I need stacks of books. <laughs> I'm one of the type that would like to be locked into a very large library <laughs> for most of the rest of my life. Okay. So that gives you an introduction to the piece. And I'm going to say that Lou didn't live to see a professional production of the opera. And it was one of the things that was <clears throat> really, really of utmost importance to him. The premiere of the piece was in 1971, and it was a puppet version, as, as Lou mentioned, and it was um, conducted by Robert Hughes, who's here this evening. And I'm going to give you a little bit about the backstory of what led up to that premiere in 1971 and why it was important to Lou to write a gay opera. Um, when he was a young man, still a teenager, his teacher was Henry Cowell. Um, Lou already had known he was gay from a very early age. You know, I asked him once, how did you know you were gay? He said, oh, easy. You know, I had crushes on the sons of tenants in our apartment building. That's when he was, you know, eight, nine years old. So um, when he was a teenager, he finally uh, moved on, to, on his own in San Francisco, and Henry Cowell was his teacher, whom he adored. And Henry Cowell brought the whole idea of world music and world culture into Lou's um, life, really. And one day after they had been talking to each other and Lou was learning from him, Henry Cowell was arrested for being homosexual and put in San Quentin prison for four years. So this was rather frightening for a young man. And, um, and continuing on, fast forward, uh, Lou was a very, very brilliant and prolific young composer who eventually moved to New York for 10 years. Um, he did, in New York, he was a critic, he wrote for dancers, he, he was a poet, he was a conductor, he conducted Charles Ives' uh, Third Symphony, for which I've got the Pulitzer Prize. So he was a polymath. He was a very, very brilliant person. But he ended up having a nervous breakdown in New York. And it was during the 40s, and it was the era where composers were expected to write serial, serial music. They were expected to adhere to, 12, to the Schoenbergian way of composing. And I think Lou's breakdown was multifaceted. One, he does say that he was affected by the bombs being dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was shortly after that it happened. Because already Lou realized that the whole world was one place. And secondly, he had been with uh, a partner finally for a number of years, a minister who had been plucked out of New York and forced to marry by the church. So Lou lost a long term love that he had. And thirdly, uh, I think the musical scene was just not, he was, you know, not fitting into that peg of serial music. So during the nine months that he was in a hospital, he began to really realize his own voice and to write music that was from his own heart. So he eventually came back to the West Coast 
It took him, he said, 10 years to develop a person that he thought was socially acceptable. But what emerged from Lou was a very proud gay man who was not at all confused by his identity. He had thought that he might marry at this time or that time. But and you have to remember, at the time that he emerged from that, in the, you know, the late 50s, it was still illegal to be gay. People were still being, you know, dragged out of bars. They were being, you know, beaten up. They were being put in jail. So it was a very different era. Um, eventually, in the early 60s, Lou did meet a partner that they would eventually stay together for the rest of their lives, and that was Bill Kolvig. So uh, four years into their relationship, um, Bill suggested to Lou, why don't you write an opera with a gay theme? Now, they met at something called SIR, which was the Society for Individual Rights, and they were advocating very, very strongly, but in a very nonviolent way, pre-Stonewall, you know, to legalize homosexuality. And they eventually did. And Lou was very much at the forefront of that. So this piece that we're going to hear tonight, this opera, is a very important piece of activism. And it took a lot of courage in that era for this piece to get done. And um, as I said, Lou was the most proud gay man I have ever met. And I worked with him for a very long time, um, as did many people. I think there are, there, there are many people in this room. And I'm wondering if those who knew Lou would raise their hand. Just, yeah, that's wonderful. So I'm going to suggest during intermission, find some of those people and ask them about their stories, because we're all part of Lou's legacy. We all have different of his stories. You'll get another one there. Um, but um, so as I said, Lou emerged as a very proud gay man, and this was a, a, an important and a very courageous piece of activism. But back then, you, you know, there was no way for him to get an opera company to perform this work. So what he had learned from Henry Cowell, a very important lesson, was to just gather your friends. And if you, if you, if you don't have instruments, make them go to the junkyard, get things that sound well. Don't depend on an institution or an organization or anybody else to get your work done. Just do it. So he gathered his friends, and they put this on as a puppet production. Um, Robert Gordon, who is here tonight, who we will uh, have the privilege of hearing from uh, the second part of this talk, um, Lou hired to write the libretto for this piece. Um, Lou decided what the subject should be, and, you know, he just talked about that. And so, um, the other thing that was important in the backstory of Lou's life is that in the early 60s, he already had gone to Asia. He had been on a very important trip to Japan, uh, a conference of ethnomusicologists, Henry Cowell was there as well, uh, at a time when he then fell in love with Korean music. So Lou was the sort of person that did everything to the nth degree. So not only did he fall in love with Korean music, he learned to master every instrument of the Korean court orchestra, and he learned to compose in Korean style, and he was very highly regarded in Korea as a, as a legitimate traditional composer and somebody that did new work. In addition to that, he... Uh, went to Taiwan and he mastered Chinese music. And Lou was of the mind that it wasn't enough 
to learn one kind of music. It's not, not enough to just speak English. You need a second language, and in music you need a second language. So Lou really considered the whole world as one place, and he adored the riches that other cultures could bring into his life. So when the first production was done, he really um, enjoyed teaching other musics to his friends. So the first production was mainly done with Asian instruments um, and, and things that Lou had also learned to make the instruments himself. So the, the very first production included uh, Chinese instruments, Korean instruments, uh, things that are, you know, single string violins that are used in many cultures, in India, in China, in Indonesia, and so forth, and um, instruments, you know, that, uh, uh, I can tell you the names, the guchan, but it's the predecessor of the koto and so forth. So I have brought, so that you can hear the differences, the overture for that first performance, I've brought an audio tape so you can hear what that was and what was accompanying the um, puppet version. Uh, it's this one, 72. The other thing you're hearing in this are some homemade instruments that Bill Kolvig, Lou's partner, made, and it's some of the earliest instruments. He went on to make over 300 instruments, especially for Lou's pieces, so Lou composed for them. Um, but um, as you saw, it was an experimental piece. People thought that maybe it went on too long. Lou went on to... Uh, write choruses for the Portland Gay Men's Chorus, and so that was the second iteration of this opera. Then Lou realized it needed arias, and so eventually he did get the commission from the Lincoln Center Festival, and he wrote arias for a production that never happened. Well, um, but it did then get orchestrated for Western instruments, because Lou later in life became more practical, and he realized you know, it was going to be impossible for the work to go on if it was simply for this collection of Asian instruments. And that, um, and I want to mention something else about the tunings while I talk about that. Lou really drifted away from 12-tone equal temperament, which is what we are almost always hearing in Western music. And he delved into very ancient modes, into ancient scales uh, that are often used... Uh, in other cultures. It's not something that we've incorporated, but those things appealed to him, and he became very interested in just intonation, in alternative tuning. So you hear that in these instruments. 
it becomes a little bit more difficult for Western instruments to acclimate to that, so Lou altered the scales and so forth. So we're now going to hear the same overture, but as it's orchestrated for Western instruments. And this is uh, from a performance of Nicole Paymont, who... Oh, Western instruments, the trumpet takes on the work of the piri, which is a Korean flute. Um, the vibraphones take on the work of the gamelan instruments that Bill Kolvig made. Um, so that is completely orchestrated, you know, for Western instruments. And so this production that we're going to hear tonight is really the first completely professional production of the opera. Yuval Sharon worked very, very closely with Bob Gordon, and we're gonna hear more about the way the libretto has shifted from Bob directly. He has created a piece that was once two long acts. He's taken those two acts and put them into one, so we're gonna have a 90-minute uh, performance uninterrupted. There will be no intermission. Um, and musically, it is also a hybrid. So Lou mentioned, and I'm not sure if you all caught it, that one of the reasons he was really eager to uh, take on the subject of Caesar going from Rome to Bithynia is that it gave him an opportunity musically to go from the west to the east. And musically, he really took that opportunity. And this production takes that opportunity as well. So it's a hybrid musically. So the first act is in Rome, and so it's primarily done with the orchestration for Western instruments, although Lou has altered the scale. It is not completely 12-tone equal temperament. So he's altered it to the liking of his own tuning. I won't get into too many technical details about it. The second act um, takes place in Bithynia, and they've brought back in the whole array. Uh, Mark Lowenstein, who is the music director, conductor for this evening, worked closely with um, a number of different people, with Bob Hughes, with Brett Campbell and Bill Alvis, um, to really delve into the technical parts of, of Lou's music. And they've brought back in um, all of the Asian instruments that were used in the first production. And so they include a shao, which is um, a Chinese flute, a piri, which is a double reed Korean kind of oboe instrument, a sheng, which is a Chinese mouth organ, which is very, very ancient instrument that Lu says made its way to Europe and actually became the organ that we know of today, the pipe organ, but it began as the shao. Um, the guchong, which is a, a zither instrument, which is the forebearer of a koto. Um, a chin chin, which is a plucked lute. Uh, it, ha it has an octagonal shape to it. And then what they're calling an ektara, which is a single string, but that instrument 
also turns up in China, it turns up in Indonesia and those other musics, and it can give you a kind of a wail that you don't get on any other instrument. So, and in addition, uh, they have brought back into the piece the instruments that Bill Kolvig created for it. These are replicas. Um, the actual instruments themselves are in a museum, a, a Percussive Arts Society museum, but these instruments were remade under the supervision of Lou and Bill before they died. They trained this one instrument maker to, um, to know how to do it accurately. So um, that's what is primarily going on with the piece. It's a shortened, foreshortened piece. Now the theme of puppets has come back into the production. So you will see uh, uh, it's been contemporized. So uh, I'm not gonna, I really don't want to give away the visuals, but I'm going to say that it is a really splendid hybrid of everything that I think Lou intended the piece to be. And Lou was the sort of composer who was always tweaking, always working um, a piece. You know, sometimes you'll look at one of his pieces and there'll be like a, a 25 or a 40 year span. It started here and it ended there. He would go back and revisit. And so while he wasn't involved in the revisions that um, were gonna happen for the Lincoln Center Festival, and I think that's why that production failed, we are very fortunate that Yuval Sharon went directly to Bob Gordon, and I'm gonna welcome Bob Gordon now to the stage, um, to really work closely on the revisions of the libretto. Well, there you are. So I'm the one, by the way, who's responsible for the painting falling off the wall. <laughs> I, uh, we, uh, we were not happy with what they uh, had in mind at Lincoln, Lincoln Center. And it's so interesting the way that works out, because they would never have done what uh, we're able to do here uh, in terms of an imaginative approach to the piece. So any questions that you might have, I'd be glad to answer yeah. them. I well, can't. I'm going I'm to start by asking you a question myself. Sure. I, I want to I say, how, how do you feel about this production, and how intimately have you been involved with it? Yuval and I have worked really well together. We were, realized right away we were on the same page. When he came up to San Francisco to talk about it, he very hesitantly said that he wondered if I might possibly be open to making a few cuts. And I said to him, you're not going to do it unless I can make cuts. <laughs> I've been trying to make cuts uh, in Young Caesar since, since 1971, believe it or not. Um, the problem was is that Lou was an amazing composer, and he was one of my closest friends until he died. But he was not a theater person. And if he was happy with the music, everything was fine. Whereas for me, uh, any of my plays went through three drafts before it even got into rehearsal, and another three after that. Lou did not want a single word changed. And it was a, um, uh, 
It was an extraordinary struggle as a result. I'd love to talk to you about the actual story. So there, there are 14 acts, yeah. uh, 14 scenes. Yeah. And so it would be really wonderful because it's such a beautiful and intimate love story between two men to talk about what the story actually is and what you've written it and what it has become. Well, uh, what you mentioned about the, the gay relationship was very important for both Lou and myself. But it really also, uh, in my view, is about change and about what happens if you don't accept it. Uh, that's my Buddhist training. And as you'll see in the opera, uh, as Julius Caesar says at one point, chances work me over. And so I, for me, it's about the existence as being very uh, irresolute. Sometimes, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like a puppet uh, that is being uh, managed by rods or strings and I can't quite figure out what I'm doing. And I wanted to really catch that whole idea of the elusiveness of our lives uh, in the opera. Mm -hmm. uh, I should say that the, the final struggle between Lou and me came during a production at Berkeley. And a cable company had asked if they could film it. And Lou said, by all means. Lou always said, by all means, to everything. And uh, they came, and I noticed that they had put a single camera at the back of the theater, and that was going to be how they filmed it, which was going to be horrendous. So after it was over, they came up to me with a contract for a release and asked me to sign it. And I said, well, I can't sign it until I actually see your film. So with this, they went backstage where Lou was thanking the performers, and they told him what I had said, and you heard Lou's voice boom out through the curtain, I will never work with a living librettist again. <laughs> so I decided then that my friendship with Lou was more important than the opera. And I yielded, and um, if he's up in a musical heaven, I hope he's not going to strike me down <laughs> for, for all of the cuts that we have made for this production. But we, we haven't cut the music, really. What? We haven't cut the music. We cut the words. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, I'm going to make that clear. And to answer you, I'm very happy with the production. Yuval and I have worked very well together. It is uh, extraordinary to me how much they have had to put together for this pro production, as you will see. So this is really the first time I've seen it the way I envisioned it. And this is 45 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm glad I've been doing something else during that time. <laughs> but. It, it, it is hard for me to believe that you're right. It was 1971 when it was first done at Caltech. And uh, three very wealthy Pasadena ladies had put up the money for this project. 
and I was sitting very near them. And when this eroticon that he talked about came on, they gasped, and I heard one of them say, oh my god, and I knew we were in trouble. Mm -hmm. They huddled together and that very night decided they would not put any more money into this. They were supposed to show up the next day with a bundle of cash for Lou so he could pay us and we could get back to San Francisco. They did not show up. Lou and Bill were okay because they had driven down so they could drive back. But a lot of us were stuck. I, I had to borrow money from my parents to get back to San Francisco. And um, I must say, one of those ladies, I'm not mentioning names, because one of those ladies I noticed is here tonight. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my God. Well, so it may have shocked her then, but she's come back for more. And, and, and you know, speaking of the eroticon, I do want to say, um, I think it's a privilege to be, uh, for those of us who are not gay men, to be invited into gay culture because you have to think about the fact that, you know, you weren't allowed to marry, you weren't allowed to really live together, weren't allowed to have families, and, but gay men are a pretty fun-loving bunch, you know? So there have been other ways, you know, to kind of get through it all and have a lot of fun. And so the eroticon, I'd say, in this version has been updated. It's been made contemporary. So it's definitely adult content. Some of you may be shocked, but I hope you, you know, enjoy it and understand that we are being invited into um, a way that people live, and this is true, and we all live in, and enjoy life in different ways, and it's really about acceptance, and it's about acknowledging our entire culture, and we're all one thing. Well, things have changed also. When it was done up in Oregon, we were really blasted by the critics. They said that it was not a fit subject for opera. Uh, uh, Caesar and Cleopatra was a fit subject for opera but not this, and they were particularly thought the eroticon had no place on an operatic stage or any other stage for that matter. So it's really, um, I'm glad I've lived long enough to see things change. I mean, I don't think anybody tonight is gonna be shocked or walk out. Yeah, but it's, you know, it, it, it's nearly 50 years later probably, you know, and sometimes it takes 50 years for a masterpiece to be recognized. So I hope you all enjoy the production as much as we've enjoyed working Thank on you. it. Thank you.